Well, I was reading uh, this week an interesting article. It's called the, the State of Theology. And the, kind of the subtitle is, What Do Americans Actually Believe? And what's interesting about that question is we live, as you well know, in a time that is shifting in our culture, but shifting in our doctrinal beliefs and even trying to define the term evangelicalism, what that means. And so here's the state of theology. And interesting, you know, you have to be careful of sometimes graphs, but this one was done by Legionnaires Ministry, which is, of course, run by uh, R.C. Sproul. It was also a survey done by Lifeway, which is a very reputable um, marketing or, you know, publishing company. But here were some of the statements, and I thought, yeah, it's kind of true. It's just really true. Shocking, some of them. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Statement number six. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And that's the survey. People responding to that survey... Okay, are identified as evangelical Christians. Okay, so let me read it again. Statement number six God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And the finding was is that 46% of self identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this statement. Half who claim to know Christ would say there's different ways to worship God. And I thought, wow, that's a pretty broad category. And I thought, yeah, that's probably true. It's probably true in the community in which we sit. Another question was statement number 18. By good deeds or by the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. That's statement number 18. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. And the finding was 52% agree or somewhat agree with that statement. In other words, you can do something to work your way to heaven other than it just be purely the grace of God. In fact, another question, statement number 23, a person obtains peace with God. Interesting. First, by taking the initiative to seek God, and then God responds in grace. And here's what the evangelical said, is 83% of self-identified evangelicals agree or somewhat agree with this. In other words, he responds to us, not him divinely drawing. But the last one was statement number 47, and there's a number of these. He said, this is the statement, only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone, as their Savior, received God's free gift of eternal salvation. And, and this is interesting. This, the participants in this one were participants with a graduate degree. Okay? Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior received God's free gift of eternal salvation. 56% of the participants with a graduate degree disagree or somewhat disagree with this statement. I mean, it is such a broad range of 
belief that is in our world today. You know, Barnhouse, the great preacher, told a story, and it's a true story. He said a group of soldiers were captured during a long war, and they were held for years in a prisoner of war compound. And so as they're in this POW compound, Red Cross packages would come and occasionally contained Monopoly games to help the soldiers pass the time. The soldiers used the Monopoly money of all, for all kinds of transactions, but especially for gambling. And many nights was passed playing poker using the yellow, green, blue, red pieces of money. And as usually happens, one of the soldiers excelled in this and succeeded at drawing most of the money into his pocket. And he became the prisoner of war camp's captain of industry, amassing a small fortune in his monopoly currency. And finally, the long-awaited day came when the war ended and the prisoners were actually sent home. And the wealthy soldier took the first opportunity to visit a bank to open an account. And proudly, he dipped into the bag he had carried from far away and kind of scooped the yellow $100 bills and the golden $500 bills onto the counter. And of course, the, the bank teller refused to accept any of the monopoly money. But listen, beloved, how much more crushing it will be to be or for the falsely accused sinner who spends his or her days in spiritual comfort that in the end leads not to heaven, but to hell. You can make mistakes, but if you make the wrong one, you're in trouble. I mean, it's, it was sad for the soldier to learn that he was in fact penniless. But the point is, is that whatever comfort we derive from various sources that assure us of salvation, what matters most is that our assurance has the currency with God and his stamp on it. But you might ask as you come in this morning, how can I be sure of my salvation? How can I have the assurance that is guaranteed by God that you were trusting in the right truth? Well, you have come to the right place and the right passage this morning. I want you to open your Bibles back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we look there on the teaching and the discourse on Jesus is the bread of life. We're going to just cover 47 through 51 today. Look there, follow along as I read, Truly, truly, I say to you in 47, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, we have been studying the famous discourse of Jesus on the bread of life. And in the recent weeks, we took a little break. We were examining five bold declarations that highlighted the nature of our salvation and our eternal security. You can see them there. There they were. Do you remember after he taught on the bread of life and who he was and met those needs there, they demanded a sign. 
They wanted a sign. They wanted another sign, even though he just fed the 5,000. Then he began to develop the scripture in chapter 6, in verses 32 through 34, that it was not God, that was not Moses who gave you the bread, it was God. And then look in chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, and he said it here, he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He began to disclose himself. He disclosed who he was. He began and has been in John's gospel identifying who he is. And in this text, in this chapter, he identifies himself as the bread of life. But you'll note, follow the text in verse 36. Jesus said, but I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. There isn't that fourth declaration, a disbelief of sinners. That even though he came and revealed himself, they are not believing in him. And we said that it might be at that point that as Jesus comes and as he ministers, as he's teaching, as he's doing the miraculous, that their disbelief would throw him off. But it didn't, because look at verse 37. Here is the determination of his sovereignty. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Far from being discouraged, he wasn't discouraged at all. He came down, and all the Father who had given to him will come to him, and whoever comes to him, he will not cast out. It is a declaration of his sovereign will in choosing people and in saving people to salvation and in securing your salvation. And we noted there that this is the testimony of Scripture in John 1.13 that you were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. You are born of God. God sovereignly saves. God sovereignly redeems. Paul, you remember, said in Romans 9, 16, it depends not on human will, not on human exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation from start to finish is the mercy of God. Paul, using another descriptive term in Colossians 3, 12, said, put on then as God's chosen ones. And that phrase there in Colossians 3.12 and in many places speaks of the, the ones whom God the Father has chosen or elected to salvation. And so here, those of you who have been chosen by God, he goes on to say, put on a heart of kindness and compassion. In fact, Paul said to the church at Thessalonica in 1.4, he said there that he has chosen you. If you're in Christ this morning, he is sovereign over that. So the unbelief that Jesus experienced did not discourage him because he knew that God the Father was choosing before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, Give thanks to God for you. Why? Because God chose you. And this is the testimony of the Scripture. Paul writing, or the writers in Acts 13.48 said, As many were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, the mission is going to be accomplished. You know well in Ephesians 1.4 that Paul told the church at Ephesus that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In fact, it's one of the tenets I would think of 
Grace Church of the Valley that we believe, we teach, the Scriptures teach, the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's all over the Word of God. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10, as a pastor and as a called man of God, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. His ministry, his suffering, his beatings, his imprisonment was to endure, to remain under for the sake of the elect. In fact, look what Jesus said in John 6, 37 of the Father's choosing. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not, what? Cast out. I'll never cast out. And so here is the wonderful teaching that God the Father gave to God the Son, a loved gift from all eternity, a people who are redeemed and the ones who come to Him are eternally secure. And so the Father gives them to the Son and the Son promises to preserve you. All of that was under that declaration of the determination of His sovereignty. In fact, Jesus said there in John 10, I give them eternal life. I give that to them. That's His prerogative. That's His authority. And Jesus said in John 10, 27, they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand and no one's going to snatch them, Jesus says, out of my hand. So once he appointed you and elected you and chose you, he did so before the foundation of the world so that your salvation is secure. Now, obviously, God's sovereign in that. I came to Christ, as I've told you many times, at 14. I grew up in a pagan home. Why I grew up in a pagan home, God knows. Why he saved me at 14, God knows. But he used all of those things. But certainly, from all of eternity, you were in the back of his mind. You were at the forefront of his mind, excuse me, and his electing purpose. And so what happens now in the discourse is he moves us from the determination of our Lord's discourse on the bread of life to now the response to his teaching. There's going to be a response to this teaching that flows from 41 down through verse 51. And that response follows three lines of thought. And we touched on this many weeks ago. And we left off on the last one. There's the leader's response. Secondly, there was the Lord's rebuke. And thirdly, there's the Lord's revelation of himself. The first item, he responded to them, and, or the leader's response, look at verse 41. It says they grumbled about him in verse 41 because he said, I am the bread of life. So their response to his teaching on the bread of life was one of grumbling. And they grumbled over two things, the fact of what he said in 41 and the familiarity of who he is in 42. Is this not Joseph's son? So rather than believing, they grumbled, and then the Lord rebuked them. In fact, you could see it in the text in 43. He said, do not grumble about yourself. And so to yourself, he rebukes them, and he issues that grand statement that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And it's that strong term of God drawing. It is a divine drawing. In other words, he's letting them know that their unbelief hasn't shattered his mission. No, the Father is drawing. God is initiating. God is enabling you to believe. God is drawing you. And it's, it's again, we said, stressing the divine sovereignty of salvation. 
We noted there that the Father is not advising, He is drawing. It is also used in the New Testament of an irresistible force drawing you. So again, when we looked at that question at the beginning of our time together, most people think it's their initiative. It's God's initiative in your life. You say, well, Pastor Scott, I believe. Pastor Scott, I repented. Yes, and how did you believe and how did you repent? Both of those in the New Testament are gifts of God. This is what it means to come to Christ. He's drawing you sovereignly. And in that act of drawing you to salvation in in eternity past, he begins to draw you through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is who a Christian is. It's someone who has their sin exposed. It's someone who sees their sin for what it is. It isn't somebody who adds the church to his life. It isn't somebody who just happens to pick up a new leaf. It isn't somebody who just happens to want to be around the things of God. God begins to draw you and he begins to expose your sin and he begins to expose your self-righteousness. He begins to expose your conscience, if you will. He exposes every sense that we have that we are a desperate sinner and the Holy Spirit spirit overrides our pride and then we come to him so here jesus is just on this discourse and he's showing that those whom the father saves look at verse 44 he says and i jesus says will raise him up on the last day in other words it's so sure those whom he has given from all eternity will be resurrected but the question would be how do i respond to the savior as he begins to launch into this rebuke and begins to tell him about his sovereignty, the question would be posed, how do I respond to the Savior? How can I have the assurance that my currency, if you will, is with God? I mean, you want to make sure you're not playing with monopoly money here. In fact, the question could be raised from the text, what must I do? How do I respond to the person of Christ. If you look back, it's interesting. He says there, look at 45. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Okay, now watch this. God the Father. But everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what does Jesus say? Comes to me. Beloved, that is incredibly exclusive. There are not many paths to God There's one path to God. And everyone who's been taught by God and heard from God, look at there in verse 45, comes to me. In other words, it's an exclusive offer. Look at verse 46, and that's where we left off. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Who is that? Jesus. Listen, if you want to understand the words and the works of God, you're going to learn them through Christ. And no one has seen God the Father except, verse 46, the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He is one with the Father. They are in triune relationships. So very well then, how do you respond to this? I mean, this is a declaration of God and Christ that is crystal clear. And so I take you then from the response to the rebuke and we pick up our text now at the Lord's revelation. He reveals himself, okay? That's what we mean by revelation. And that revelation of himself 
follows three arguments that lead to a true understanding of Christ. Okay? We'll look at those. Let's pick up the first one, is the path to eternal life. How do you get there? How do you make sure you have assurance that you're putting your hope in the right thing? What is the right thing? Well, it's right here in the Word of God. Look at verse 47. A double emphatic, we call it in the Greek, truly, truly, I say to you. And whenever you see that phrase, truly, truly, we might not talk that way today, but they did in biblical times. And when Jesus said that, it's a double emphatic. In other words, this is of great importance. Jesus wants to make it clear when he's seen the Father what you must do. He said, I say to you, and then underline that phrase, whoever believes in me has eternal life. He is the path, that's the point, to eternal life. God is sovereign in salvation. But again, here, there is a strong emphasis on our responsibility to believe the gospel. So it's funny. He's sovereign. He's drawing. You're coming to him. But now all of a sudden, he flips back to how must you respond. And he doesn't just talk about the elect. His canvas goes further than that. Look at it again in 47. Whoever believes, and then this assurance, has eternal life. He's the path. That's the point. Look back, will you, just for a moment in John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, or turn over there in your electronic device. This is the statement. Do you remember in 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And now this, that whoever believes in Him, and then here's the promise, may have eternal life. It is belief. It is trust. It is assurance of the work and the person of Christ. You are putting your hope and your confidence not in your self-righteousness, but in the person and work of Christ. And whoever believes in Him has eternal life. You understand. Look down, next verse, 316. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Here it is again. Underline this. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have, there's the promise, eternal life. And You've heard me say that before. It's not that you're saved because of your belief. Belief in the Scripture. Belief in the New Testament. Unpacking a New Testament theology always has a direct object attached to it. And it is always the person of Jesus Christ. And so here in 3.16, it's believing in Him. And then the negative, you're not going to perish, but you're going to have eternal life. Glance down in chapter 3 in verse 18. There's that statement again. Whoever, in other words, he opens that call up. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Put your trust in him. This is the path to eternal life. There is not many paths. There are not many ways. There are not different ways to get to a relationship with God. There are not different ways to worship God. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 3 in verse 36. He couldn't say it enough, could he? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains or abides on him. So, beloved, let me say that in one passage, 
you have the sovereign drawing of the Father. But you also have an incredibly strong command to believe the gospel side by side from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's sovereign, but you got to place your hope and your trust in him. Let me just say it this way for an implication here. Men and women are repeatedly invited to believe, to obey, and to come to Christ. Man is indeed responsible to his maker on what he does with the person of Christ. And here Jesus is spelling out in this revelation, here is the path to eternal life. In fact, go back to chapter 4 and look at verse 13. And and again, this all-encompassing command that goes out, Jesus said to her in 4.13, everyone who drinks of this water shall be thirsty again. But verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And so again, that call goes out. One of my favorite is found in John chapter 5. Look over there in verse 24. He gave that double emphatic there in 524. Truly, truly, I say to you, and then here's that statement, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has what? eternal life look over to john chapter 6 in verse 35 you just can't get away from this weeks back jesus said to them in 635 i am the bread of life and there's that statement again whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst would you glance down in chapter 6 we'll get this next week in verse 54 and i'll explain it Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. In other words, whoever appropriates me, whoever comes to me, whoever abides in me. Look what it says in 54. Has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, this is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came. It said in John 20, 31, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. And, and so there's this path to eternal life that is open and expressed, and if you will, a call given to the world. In fact, look at chapter 6 in verse, in verse 47, where we're just studying even now as you look back there in 647, where he says, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Look over at chapter 8, if you will. Chapter 8 In verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, another emphatic there, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Okay? Look over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, one of those grand statements there. In 11 verse 25, do you remember that one there when it says Jesus said to her, He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall, what? Live. So listen, beloved, there's a path. Jesus couldn't be more clear. Here's the path to eternal life from God through Christ. There are not many ways. There is one way. You know, it's interesting. J.C. Ryle, the great man of God many centuries ago, said the last judgment He said, we'll prove that it is not want 
of God's election so much as laziness and the love of sin, unbelief, and unwillingness to come to Christ, which ruins the souls that are lost. Here is an open invitation of the gospel. So first, in our Lord's revelation, He gives you first the path to eternal life. Whoever believes in Me has eternal life. Listen, I don't want you playing with monopoly money. The real currency with God is to put your hope and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You come to an end of yourself. You come to an end of your sin. You come to an end of your self-righteousness. You get on your knees. You beat your breast. You say, God, be merciful to me. You recognize Him as a glorious Savior and you bow your knee to Him because He is not one of many ways. He is the only way. But then Jesus, follow the argument here, uses then the manna in the wilderness as a metaphor to further describe himself. He said the path to eternal life is to believe in me. Then secondly, the second revelation is it leads to a greater understanding of the person of Christ. Okay, you're believing in him, but here it draws it out. Look at chapter 6 again, and look at verse 48. He then declares, I am the bread of life. So to believe in me on his person, or in the path to eternal life, is now to believe in him who is the bread of life. It is a description of who he is. It is a description of his person. He said back in 35, do you see that? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so, listen, beloved, is a declaration of who he is. Who is he? He is the great I am. And you know that there's seven of these in the New Testament. We'll get to all of them in John. Here's the first of seven. You know that he said, I am the vine. You know that he said, I am the door. You know that he said, I am the resurrection of the life. Here is the first I am. He says in the first I am statement, I am the bread of life. The first part of the statement is a declaration of his divinity. Here is, if you will, the person of Christ. He is co-equal with God the Father. I am the same God the Father who back in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Exodus said, I am, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. The one, the great Jehovah Yahweh, who said I am in the Old Testament, is now identified in the New Testament in the person of Christ. So here's the path, but here's the person. And a greater description of his person, beloved, is he is, I am. And then he finishes that statement, he's the bread of life. In other words, he's beyond the physical bread. God is the one who delivered the physical bread in the manna in the Old Testament. But he now is the bread of life. You say, well, how do I get that bread of life? I want to make sure I'm playing with God's currency. How do I get that bread? Well, look, in verse 35, fascinating statement. You remember this? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And here's the phrase. Whoever, what does it say? Comes to me. In other words, it's who's ever coming to me by faith. Who's ever trusting in our all-sufficient Savior who's ever coming to me by faith and trusting in Christ, embracing Christ, is the one who understands what Jesus meant by I am the bread of life. You you might wonder, let me just say this. How does that become yours? 
I mean, he is the bread, but he's not just physical bread. He's the bread of life. God gave the physical bread and the manna in the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying something more. I'm not physical bread because they went out and collected it every day and then they became what? Hungry every day and had to collect it the next day except on the seventh day, right? So they had to get more bread and more bread and more manna and more manna. But Jesus is saying way beyond that. I'm the bread of life. I'm not just the bread physically. I'm the bread of life. I am the source of life. So then how do you come to Christ? Well, if he's the source of life and he's the giver of life, as you come to Christ, he gives you his life. As he is the source of life and the substance of life, by your union of abiding with him, you have life in Christ. Your life is alive because he is alive. But in fact, look how he explains it. Look at verse 49. He's just furthering this concept of his person. He said, your fathers, you understand this, ate the manna in the wilderness and they what? They died. We understand that. Just because they ate it, they didn't live forever. They ate it for the day. But in 24 hours, they were hungry again. But he said this, verse 50, this amazing statement, John 6, 50. This, speaking of himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not, what, die. In other words, that manna sustains you, but it can never impart eternal life. So look what Jesus said, great statement in 51. He said, I am, and there's another statement. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. But he said there that if anyone eats this bread, what do you mean eats this bread? Well, come to to Jesus, to express faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to cling to Jesus. And you're clinging to what? You're clinging not to just his righteous life, but you're clinging to his work on the cross. Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and what? Righteousness. I dare not trust trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And so he is the bread. Now, this is not new in this section. Glance back up in 630. Do you remember there? They said to him, remember their response? What sign do you do, even though you just fed 5,000? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, look at this, is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he said, look at it again in 635, I am the bread of life. Because they asked in verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. And he said, I am the bread of life. What a wonderful, wonderful statement by our Lord. In other words, physical manna was but a shadow of the true bread that comes from heaven, which is bound up in the person of Christ. And this is obviously a statement when he said, I have come down from heaven, a statement on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that the word in John 1 became what? Flesh. 
In other words, he came down from heaven. And you'll notice that, that it says, look at verse 33. He said, for the bread of God is he. He identifies the bread. The bread is a person. It's Christ. He who comes down from heaven. And this is not a small argument. Look down in chapter 6 in verse 38. Jesus there says, I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You say, why does he keep saying, Scott, I have come down from heaven? Here's why. It's his heavenly origin. He's just not there. He's not just a man. He's not just a guru. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a rabbi. Jesus Christ has come down from heaven. He's been sent by God. God the Father sent, if you will, His only begotten Son. And He came down from heaven. Look at chapter 6, verse 41. There bothered the Jews. They grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You say, why did it bother Him? Because He was declaring His heavenly origin. Listen, you think I'm just the son of Joseph. I'm not. I'm the true bread. I am, Jesus said, the bread of life. I've been sent by God the Father. They knew exactly what he was saying. In fact, their trouble was, look at verse 42. They said to him, is, this not, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? Look down at chapter 6, verse 58. This is the bread See, there's Jesus or John, the apostle. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live, what? Forever. In fact, glance back at 651, where he said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. What do you mean eat? Accept. Appropriate is the thought. To believe. If you eat the bread, you're, you're taking in the bread. You're coming to Christ. He's the only way. So he's the path. And he is the person. One eats of it. Look at verse 50. That one may eat of it and not what? Die. You want to live forever? <laughs> Trust Christ. What an incredible message. That's better than anything on the presidential debates, isn't it? I mean, you l- listen. Listen. You want to know what I think about the debate? Let's get back to the scripture. You, you appropriate him. You come to him. You believe in him. You will not die. Because Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. That the one who believes in me, though he dies, shall what? Live. This is the greatest message there is. So he's revealing himself, is he not? He reveals, number one, the path to eternal life. Whoever believes in me. Secondly, he reveals again, secondly, his person in a greater way that he is or I am the bread of life. And then thirdly and finally in that final revelation is he reveals himself and what he did to purchase our salvation. This is just still mind boggling to me. This is the one who dwelt in eternity past. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is God the Son. This is sinless God the Son. This is the one who never erred. This is the one who kept the law. And then look what he did for you. Unbelievable. He said in 51, do you see it on the second half? He said, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my what? Flesh. In other words, to secure eternal life, 
He gives himself. He offers up his flesh, which in the Greek is sarks. Sometimes in the Greek it's soma. But I think John's making the connection here that I'm going to offer up for the life of the world my flesh. Flesh is sarks because the one who became flesh is the one now who will die for you. In other words, he's going to offer up his flesh to death on a cross to atone for your sins. The word that became flesh in 114 now says that he will give his flesh for you, but he puts it in that phrase in verse 51, for the world. And this is the refrain of Scripture. I think some of these Scriptures will come up in a moment. He's the good shepherd, and Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his, what? His life. Here's the path to eternal life. Here's the person of eternal life. But here, thirdly, is the price of our redemption. He lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus said of his own accord in 1018, no one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And then you have this phrase, underline that phrase. Do you see it again in 51? I, he said, and the bread, and I like this phrase, that I will give. And, and that word is all over the place. You know it in John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten son. So God the Father gives his only begotten son. Then Jesus, in perfect submission always to his Father's will, gives of himself. Matthew, it says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his, what? His life a ransom for many. Beloved, I could just say to give his life for you. To give his life for you. Galatians 1.4 says that he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for you. So here is the price of our redemption. It's his very life. He said in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave what? Himself up for me. In other words, for you. Here's the price, thirdly, of his revelation. His redemption was his own life. And Paul, speaking in Ephesians 5, 2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, for you. And so the only question is, have you placed your faith in him? I'm not talking if you come to church. I'm not talking if you know somebody here. I'm not talking if your mom and dad know the Lord. Have you understood that he died in your place on that cross? He loved me and gave himself up for me. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives, wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.6, There's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. This is just rich, redemptive, biblical, theological language. And so, according to the beginning here on the state of theology, no, there's not many different ways, okay? This is what the Word of God says, and it is our task every Sunday to understand His Word to us. Titus 2.14 says that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. In fact, you have to understand, just back up, think about this. This is obviously in the life of Christ, right? Right now. But you understand, if you just looked at 51, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That right here, 
Jesus is prophetically declaring his death in that statement. So his life wasn't taken from him. He gave his life up for you and for your children and for the people that you work with, if you will. You need to tell them this good news, right? In fact, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself, speaking of Christ, Peter said, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Writing prophetically, centuries before, Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs, our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. And you know how it finishes. The Lord, it says, laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all. This is the gospel, beloved. Here is the revelation of the gospel from the person of Christ himself. And and you'll note there, and I'm just pointing this out to you. Uh, Look what it says, last phrase. And the bread that I will give for the life of the, what? World. You ought to be sharing that. This is for everybody. This is not just for believers. He gave himself for the life of the world. In other words, here, the lamb, the lamb of God, John 1, 29, is not limited to the Jewish people. It is extended, if you will, to the whole world. Now, is the whole world saved? No. Our Lord's sacrifice for sin, here's the point, reaches to all human beings without distinction, and the gospel transcends all racial, all national, and all ethical boundaries, if you will. He's the propitiation not only for our sins, but the sins also of the whole world. John says in 1 John 4, 14, as we studied, he said, we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So here's how I look at it. His sacrifice is sufficient for all people without distinction, but it is efficacious. It works for only those who savingly believe in the gospel. So here's the Lord's revelation. Here's the path to eternal life, the person of Christ, and finally, the price of our redemption. And all of that, beloved, leads to a true understanding of the person of Christ. You know, we we just want to get it right, don't we? So I'm just asking you, are you this morning... You, are you in the real possession of the real currency of eternal life? It is only bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. And you've got to come to him. You've got to believe in him. You've got to have faith in him. So listen, you ought to be telling everybody you can. And all the while you're telling them, we all know that God's sovereign, lest the Father draws No one can come. But there's always divine, if you will, initiative and human responsibility that our goal is to cast the seed and throw it so that that men and women can believe. But Jesus said in 47, whoever believes has eternal life. I pray that you would, that God would open your eyes.